Christ Church Kingwood is a Christ-centered church that seeks to proclaim the gospel in both word and deed by glorifying God and making disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us now as we worship together in the ministry of the word. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Amen. We are looking a little slim this morning. I know we have a few people out sick and out of town, so we'll be praying for them. Um, I'm going to open up just by reading where we're at. We've been the last uh, nine to 10 weeks in Philippians, and we're in chapter two. We're going to be in verses 17 through 30 today. So if you have your Bible, turn there. Philippians 2. 17 through 30 says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by the news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as, I, just as soon as I see how it will go with me. I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, Honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this morning, a chance to gather as your people around your word. I pray for those who are out sick, that you would heal them quickly. I pray for our classes upstairs right now, that you would minister to those teachers that are not sitting down here, that would be easy, uh, but serving our children, teaching them the gospel, I pray that they would be ministered to by their own teaching through your word. And I pray for us as well, that this worship team that leads us so faithfully would be ministered to as they lift up psalms of, songs of praise to you, God, that your word would go out and that you would be honored in what we do here. We thank you, we love you, we thank you for the power of Christ working through us we pray this in his name. Amen. All right. Well, if you had a chance to attend Tuesday night, talking to the ladies, we, they started a Bible study through the book of James and my wife got to share on Tuesday night and she just got to simply share. She didn't go through a lot of teaching. She just shared, what is the hope that we're going to do for the next few months through this book? And as I was reading through her notes, uh, her encouragement to you, a lot of it was to slow down. 
part of this goal through reading through God's word is to take inventory of what he's doing. So if she was saying, if you're a note taker, take notes. If you're a journaler, journal. If you need to pull out the highlighters, pull out the highlighters. But the line that I wrote down or I took away from those notes from her was perfection is not the goal. So as we're studying through God's word, we don't have to nail it as we meet together as community. Perfection is not the goal. Persistence, faithfulness, communion with the father, that is the goal. And so that's not saying that walking faithfully and perfectly in step with the father isn't our hope or isn't a hope of ours, but it doesn't start with our perfection. Holiness and faithfulness and salvation are rooted rather in the perfection of Jesus Christ. And Jesus comes with the ability for us to commune with God himself. And so that's the hope. And the hope of everything that we do at Christ Church, that's why we say we exist to glorify God and make disciples. We want to bring people closer into communing with the Father. And so very intentionally, this is not glamorous. We're not walking into the chapel or to the worship center. We're walking into hardwood floors with uh, basketball players' pictures on the back wall and stuff everywhere, right? So, but at the same time, it is a huge blessing. This is a basketball gym and it works perfectly, right? But it's not the typical setup that we have. But a lot of what we do, we're not, we're not bragging on that, that it's unglamorous but we do that purposely to remove some obstacles sometimes that get in the way of many churches to simply commune with the Lord. And so we've known over time what we see when we strip down those things and we just meet in someone's home and study God's word and pray, it allows us to commune with the Father, that discipleship happens, that we are radically changed by simply meeting with the Lord. And so Paul knows this as well as we're looking at this text. And all the letters that we've gone through over the past 10 years together, uh, it's a constant call to strip these things away from our lives that doesn't lead us to glorifying God and making disciples. And so looking at Philippians, kind of the brush of fresh air that comes with after studying a book like Galatians is just a simple encouragement that Paul is stirred up genuinely by this church to the point that he says in our text today, If you read there, even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. And so faithful living is intoxicating in the family of God. Paul, who had every right and reason to complain and whine, finds himself in prison and he's not going to them and saying, please, would you just petition the government to get me out of here? That's not where he's spinning his wheels, but rather is using his position and circumstances to advance the gospel by sending letters out to these churches, specifically here to the Philippians as an encouragement to fellow brothers and sisters. And so he's so stirred up by the faithfulness of those leading in the church that he, for a moment here, metaphorically takes off his priestly robes. He kind of puts down that Jewishly scholar intellect that he has, and he's just Paul. He's a, he's a friend and a fellow partaker of the gospel as he described it. He's not, he's not jumping in here and we're not learning deep doctrine about dispensation or atonement, but he gives us this simple doctrine of how to be a friend, how to live in gospel community how our unity is founded upon the works of Christ and Christ alone. And then as I just read in verses 19 through 24, we get this clear picture of the worth of a fellow brother 
like Timothy is to Paul and the church. And then verses 25 through 30, he does the same thing with another friend, Epaphroditus. And so as I'm reading through this, I just wrote down three things that I see in Philippians 2, 17 through 30 that make the gospel available and just so approachable for everyone in this room. And the first thing I wrote down was Paul models how our humanness or maybe our vulnerability as broken humans is key in God's work, in kingdom work. That's the first thing. Secondly, not only is our humanity okay and designed by God, but even as broken as we are, God uses us to proclaim his good news to other broken people. And then third, this text magnifies God's power through the unity that can happen in the church. And so as you look at verses 19 19 through 24, and as you go back and you study this with your small group, Paul explains why he's sending Timothy. Typically when Paul is sending in a representative, it's because they've kind of messed up. It's like, I've heard some things, not great. So I'm sending this guy, we're gonna check in, or I have these rebukes against you and I need you to listen because they're stirring this up over here. But in this scenario, in our text today, Paul is sending, most likely from the information that we have, his main purpose of sending Timothy is for Paul's own benefit, for his comfort and peace of mind. And verse 19 says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. And so even Paul, this epic apostle that we often consider probably too highly than we should, but still a man that was used by the Lord, he needs comfort. He needs friendship. He needs peace of mind. And so it's a reminder that godly leaders are human, right? In verse 27 and 28, if you'll look there, when talking of Epaphroditus, Paul will say that a big part of sending Epaphroditus back to the Philippians was to reduce his anxiety. That's relatable. If God can use Paul, then surely me, right? Paul worried and struggled, me too. I do. Paul's saying that I have weaknesses and I was against God in every way and now look what he's done. And so I can say, God, do that for me, please. And so God ministers, as we'll see in these verses, that God ministers to broken people that have emotions and cares and concerns. And a primary way that he ministers to those people is using broken people with emotions with concerns and cares. And so it leaves no one, no one in this room this morning is immune from the gospel. That is the good news of what we proclaim week in and week out. Jesus came for the sick and for the lost, for the broken people. And so you and I qualify. That means coworkers qualify. That means every family member, whatever description you want to give of them right now in your life, every family member of ours Every one of us who feel like we have royally failed, God has made a way even for us to the point that Paul tells the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 12, 10, that is why for Christ's sake, I delight in my weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties for when I am weak, then I am strong. And so when we let that humanity show out, or maybe rather worded it differently, when I admit that I'm not God, and that's done in partnership with the gospel 
God is made much of. God works with that. Jesus became man. So if we're hating on humanity and we're always terrible, God came as man and it was perfect. He became weak. He gave up power to show a world of broken humans that his father was capable. He was fully sufficient and has great power to minister to us, to overcome sin, to ultimately even put death in its place. And then as Matt read last week, and to the Philippians, Paul will say, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God. And I keep coming back to that because that's impossible. <laughs> we just can't. But all things are possible, right? We, we know the power of Christ in our lives. And Israel is a visual of that verse to me. God could not work with their grumbling and complaining hearts. If, if you're walking through the Bible, reading, playing with us, it's miserable. I mean, watching them, it is so painful, but it's such a parallel to our own hearts. Why? Because they're so self-consumed. God cannot work with that. And so God made a way by and through his son, a son who became a man to model how flesh in submission to the father can actually work well. So through the cross of Christ, we start to see the submission to God and to each other doesn't mean giving up freedom or really mean death at all, but is the way to true eternal life. And so through these verses, we see how God uses our weaknesses and it's his will to do so. And so that second point, Paul writes the entirety of this letter and specifically stops here to address these two men to the Philippian church to show that not only can he minister to us as broken people, but even more so he freezes up. He frees us up. He desires us in his plan of redemption. Previously in chapter two, he says that we are to shine as lights to a crooked and twisted generation. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so not as people that prove their worth, we don't, we're not running around trying to do lots of things. That is not who we are. That is not our identity in Christ as children of God to go around and, and do more or to look pretty because we're not the focus, right? God doesn't just polish us up and set us on the shelf. That's not what he did. We're not the one to behold, but he exposes our deficiencies to prove his sufficiency. It's purposeful. The exchange for us as followers of Jesus Christ is letting go of everything else and holding fast to the word of life, as Paul has already said to the Philippians. To the Corinthians, he says, this is not our own doing, but all this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And then thirdly, as I'm reading this letter to the Philippians and He's describing Timothy and Epaphroditus. It proves to me how God could use, it's only God that could use a mashup of this type of people and still receive glory through it. And they're not just making it through, but they're running this race well and live it in joyous fellowship and unity. And we're not just coming in here to be cleaned up, but he's actually using us and bringing himself glory. And so Paul is 
really proud of these two guys. It's a very different language. If we're looking at any other letter that he's written, most of Paul's letters are addressing that sin or that issue, but this is a letter that he describes himself even as a father. He's looking at his sons and he's just saying, I'm so proud of you. It's a really beautiful moment. And in verses 17 through 18, again, it says, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Through ministry, through misery, through prison, through shipwreck, through persecution, Paul is rejoicing. Epaphroditus, it says he almost died in service to Paul. And that would have aided at Paul, not just because he was a friend, but he admits that he's in a hurry to send Epaphroditus back to the Philippians because he knows how much they love and miss Epaphroditus. They were worried about him. He was a brother. And the anxiety of almost losing Epaphroditus, it weighed heavy on his heart. We see that in this text. He was beyond overjoyed that his friend was healthy again. It was really simple. That makes it so relatable in this text to us. We've gone through death. We rejoice when someone comes back to health. And even more joyful now, he is to send him back to minister the church, saying in verses 27 through 28, indeed he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him therefore that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. And so just, it's a, it's a really beautiful part in scripture, I think. Uh, when we think of epic occurrences, what are some stories that come to mind? Do y'all have any? What are like children's stories that were like, yes. What'd you read growing up? Noah. Noah. Lion's Den. Lion's Den. David and Goliath, right? Moses against Pharaoh. Right? I don't think the Philippians would have been included in most children's biblical literature. I, I don't, we don't find it in those epic children's stories, right? Because they're not children's stories, right? These are stories that the Lord's working through and it's God on display and we see God on display in this. This is things we should teach to our children. Look at the beauty of what is happening, happening here. It's an impossibility apart from Christ. So if we're taking in this moment, we have this Jewish radical murderer, Saul, changed through the power of Christ. He's now being held in prison, not for murder, but because of his love for God's church. And he's commending two guys, one being Timothy, who's really a young nobody with a Jewish mother and a Greek father living in a land where their hands are heavily tied by Roman rule. And then you have Epaphroditus, who we don't, we don't know much besides what we have here. And they're in a community, as we talked through in the opening of this book, that started off with a foreign female businesswoman, a slave girl, and a Roman jailer. And this odd group of people are modeling how to live in holy community. They're absolutely turning the world upside down in this part of the world because they're just faithfully living out the long road of what it looks like to live in gospel friendship and unity. And so what's happening here when I look at that, immediately what came to mind for me, and I, I think I've preached through this before, is Jeremiah 43, 19 through 21. Behold, I am doing a new thing. These guys are living out the prophecy of what Jeremiah is saying. 
Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now, in, now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beast will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people who I formed for myself that they might declare my praise. And what's really beautiful about that is that is a outpouring of the Lord. That is all the Lord. I don't have to jump through religious hoops. I dogged myself a lot because I didn't go to seminary. I, I feel unqualified to be up here. We don't have to go through classes. We don't have to have status. We don't have to be eloquent in speech or have the entirety of the Old Testament memorized. But as we look at this, Paul, Epaphroditus, Timothy, and the Philippian church weren't chosen by God because they were awesome. That wasn't the point, right? We see that they weren't. Paul was terrible, terrible, absolutely terrible. He didn't choose them because they were good humanitarians or they were outdoing everybody else. But that's the beauty of the gospel. It's, it's not a gospel offering more riches to those who are already rich. It's, it's not a gospel to those of status or those with excellent skills. But it's a gospel of grace for blue collared workers enslaved to work or for millionaires enslaved to money. It's for the sick. It's for the addict. It's for the abused and the, and the lied to. For those of us that, as the scripture says, which is just a funny description, probably makes more sense in that region, ostriches and jackals. It's not a good description. For those in the deep throes of anger and guilt and shame and confusion, this gospel is for all. And then it says, can you see it? Do you not perceive it? God is making a way through lifeless places, through hearts in the desert, giving drink to a people that never deserved it. And that's us. So when we read this, it's a really beautiful moment of this is our testimony of what God's doing. He's slowing us down, removing obstacles so that we can commune with him. He's allowing us to be changed eternally by him. And so when I look at this moment in this letter, it reminds me of y'all, just where I've reflected. We went, uh, we went out last night with the nose and that's what we talked about. That's what I always talk about. When we're, we went hiking in Colorado with a few guys a few weeks ago, we talked about Christchurch. Went out to lunch with Doug the other day. We talked about Christchurch. Like that's what we do because I'm so stirred up by this community. But it's not, it's not a cakewalk. It's not, it's not always pretty. It's often harder engaging faithfully here but we have experienced the deep doctrines. If we're talking about deep scriptural things, we've experienced this, these things not by earning it in college classrooms, right? Not writing dissertations or sitting around and having deep epiphanies about the nuances of the book of Revelation, right? Those are all good things. We need people doing that, necessary. But most of us here, most of us have learned the deep gospel truth through royally failing, learning how to repent, watching God take care of us and give us grace, grace through each other, 
through the power of Christ. And so it's been years for some of us of friendships and faithful living. It's been painful, it's been beautiful. It's been long, it's gone by quickly. It's what Paul is commending in these two brothers and their service to him in the church. And so two weeks ago, it stood out to me, I got asked the question, hey, how is the church? And that's not abnormal. I, I think we get asked that as pastors often, like, hey, how's Christ Church? But I got asked three times within like two days. So it made me think like, oh, is there something wrong that like y'all don't know? <laughs> but I was asked by college friends that we went to Austin to visit that we hadn't seen in years, how's the church? How's it going? My parents are so faithful. How's Christ Church? They visit often. They love you guys. And then I went out to lunch and someone asked me, what would you say is the state of the church? So those three questions, very similar. How is Christ Church? How are we doing? And my reply very quickly to all three questions, which were the same, was kind of articulating Paul's different style of writing to the Galatians versus the Philippians church. I feel like Christ Church would receive the letter to the Philippians that we aren't perfect. And actually, if I, I'm not diving deep into this text because Paul is pretty light here, but if I were to, and so many people want to, scholars tear this apart because they're saying, even as he's writing in the middle of it, he's having to work through the nuances of some relational discord that they might've had. We're, we're kind of reading through it a little bit or maybe uh, you know, pulling out more than we should. But he presents these two men and opens the letter specifically calling out leadership because there was most likely something underlying that he wanted to deal with at the same time encouraging them. And so specifically with Timothy and Epaphroditus, he addresses them because some scholars will say that they had reason. I'm getting tripped up on my words here. I, I moved my pages around. Uh, they had reason to address both of them because they questioned him on how he used those two guys. And so the letter that opens up here, if you'll turn just a few pages over and look how he starts off this letter, to the Romans or the Corinthians or the Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, or the Thessalonians, he does this general opening to the saints, to the people in that city or region or place. But to the Philippians, he starts off this letter by saying, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. That's how he starts off most letters. But then to the Philippians, he says, with the overseers and deacons. So he makes this specific call out alongside the church. And again, we're making some uh, assumptions based on context and in comparison to his other letters, but it seems as though Paul is trying to bridge some trust issues in their relationship with each other. There's some language in, in the rest of the book too that we could point to that I won't spend time on. But even in the midst of sending an encouraging letter, Paul is having to be wise in his timing and tone. And so my thought is, have you ever had to think about timing and tone in your marriage? Is that important? When you send a text, I think that's one of the biggest places we have to think about timing and tone because it just, emotion does not get picked up in that. Uh, if you have teenagers, timing and tone. If you have been a teenager, timing and tone, right? If you've sent an email at work, man, timing and tone. So it's important. And the point being that we know the Philippians weren't without blemish or weaknesses. I'm not gonna dive too much into that. And Paul was not without weakness. And yet God was still working. That's the point I wanna make through that. 
that even in the midst of whether they had leadership problems or not, they were not perfect. And God was working with that. And that's friendship, right? That is real gospel community that we are enjoying the good and having hard conversations that lead to healing and growth. And so looking at this, Paul keeps us humble in this text because right in the middle of commending Timothy, Epaphroditus and the church, he can't help but remind them it's God who receives the glory. In all the verses centered around Timothy, Paul is looking at it through the lens of future hope and expectation of what God will do. Timothy is a reminder to Paul of what to look forward to. In verse 24, we kind of get an idea of that when he says, I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come too. It's this, what will come? He's looking forward to it. It's a language of hope and trust that's steeped in the Lord. In most verses, if you'll go look at verses 25 through 30, they're centered around Epaphroditus. They speak more into things that have already been, that have already happened. Lots of past tense verbs. And so it's a, it's a good pairing of what is and what is to come. We see different people in God's church providing different avenues of encouragement, of resources. It's a unified mission of glorifying God and making disciples. And so those three things that I called out earlier, one, that through our humble humanity, that two, through the proclamation of the gospel, three, through our unity in Christ, we bring a great confidence to each other. We affirm in each other the work of God, what he has done and what he will do. That our humanity or our humanness and our weaknesses actually make for a great opportunity for God to be put on display. And then as Cap read earlier, our call to worship said, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. That what we do here is a holy, God-ordained unity found nowhere else. That's how that text ends. He, he says, for there, in that place, where people give up their rights for the glory of the Lord, for the encouragement of someone else, in that place, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. And so if I'm looking at that, we're something to behold. We're weird. We stand out from a community of other people. It's a place where God's blessing rests when we walk in submission to him and the unity and unity to each other. Not because we're great, right? But because he is. And so that gives me great rest as we're reading through the rest of this letter because it's a letter that I could hand to you. I could. We talk about that often as elders and elders' wives and small group leaders, and we wanna commend that in you. It's not a letter that I have to look at and be like, oh gosh, Christchurch, who has bewitched you, right? <laughs> oh foolish Christchurch. But it's more of an atmosphere of, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should rejoice and be glad with me. And so we wanna to continue to speak that over and commend when y'all are doing things right. We call out things when they're wrong, but y'all do a lot of right. What God's doing here is really exciting. And if you hold a position of leadership here at Christ Church, it's not because you have a degree. It's not because you've done so many awesome things. Our elders are not elders because they met their hourly service of, you know, whatever. 
they didn't go to obscure amount of time and go through these classes of you know, prayer and fasting. We don't make them go on silent retreats. Those, are, those aren't qualifications. We're looking at scripture to say, what does God ordain for elders, uh, for our deacons, your servants? We're just coming alongside of you and giving you the title deacon because you're already doing it. And you're putting God's character on display. The qualifications of an elder are no different in the gospel. If you look at those scriptures, there's, they're no different for an elder than it really is for any other believer. It's like, it is the characteristic of a believer. Holiness is a hard thing. We talk about this a lot. Holiness is a hard thing to put metrics on. How do we measure growth here? Because a lot of other churches measure it by how many people are in the seats. And if I'm looking at that, we've grown. When we walked through the store, I think there were 35 people in the gym at Woodland Hills Elementary maybe another 20 in the children's ministry. So are we killing it? Yeah, we are. <laughs> if we look at our budget, right? But that's not how we look at things. You can't really put a formula to what being faithful to your spouse and kids looks like or what it looks like to endure even in the face of hurt and struggle. Personal holiness is not a line item on our budget. It's not gonna be there. So this is, we're looking at things that, if I'm looking at this text, Paul's, Paul's looking at some very different metrics to engage the Philippians on. He commends these brothers and sisters for embracing the mundane, hard road of service to each other. It's not always fun. To die into themselves and thus living unto the Lord. If I'm looking at a budget, to be honest, our budget has not been awesome this year. Uh, during COVID, we had like the best year ever. All other churches were not having the best year. So it's just, it's not always a place that we can look at finances and judge whether we're growing, right? That's not always where we look. But when I look at the state of the church and I'm asked, hey, how is your church? I reflect more on the testimony of 200 people Generally, where are we at? What is the posture of our heart before the Lord? Are we striving in the fear of the Lord? I look at how you are repentant when wrong. That's a big deal. Hungry to learn. You get irritated when you feel like you aren't making big enough strides. That's okay. I like that. God works with that. And so despite budgets or hard circumstances at times, the gospel's going out. I see that in your kids. So many of our neighbors are here. People that we play soccer with, right? They're here. God is being made much of. And that text says, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And so I can bring people into that place. That's a good place for you to bring family and friends and coworkers. And when we're all doing that in humility and counting others more significant than ourselves, it points directly to the Lord. And that's what Paul is pointing at in this letter. He's encouraging them to say, keep going. It's a people changed through obedience and communion with the Father. So I wanna read this line one more time. I wanna say to you, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. God, I thank you for that truth.
I thank you we can just read your word and stand up behind it and say yes. But at the same time, it's condemning. We aren't perfect. We are weak. We have flaws. We have sins against you. God, we have failed. We do not measure up to your word. But that was the point of your cross, the cross of Christ. It was to magnify that. Father, that you are put on display. And I pray that we would step aside, that you would be able to use that for your glory, that it was by your design to use us as your spokesmen to go out and share this good news. But it's came through years of being transformed by you so that we live it and know it and can testify to it. And I just thank you for the work that you've done in this place for those coming in the last few weeks or months. I pray that you would minister to their hearts, that you would humble us, that we would not get big heads at times when we do things well, but that we would say only through the grace of Christ. We love you. We trust you. We ask that you would be glorified. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Thank you for worshiping with us through the preaching of God's word. We exist to glorify God by making disciples. We would love to have you join us in person as we gather together on Sundays at 10 a.m. at the Covenant Preparatory School on Hamblin Road in Kingwood, Texas. To learn more about Christ Church Kingwood, visit our website at ChristChurchKingwood.org.